people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make, a, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, when there was only silence and void, God creates, like Bach, Mozart, or Beethoven. But he weaves together the threads of life and gravity with the suspense of spring and autumn with profound pleasure and promise. Explosions of life spring up into the vacuum of space. Twisted rock and gas, galaxies of dust and debris form a cosmos so big that it bends the tracks of time itself. And there in the midst of everything, a marble of green and blue is suspended. Sea and land separate with the clap of God's hand. Earth and sky pull apart with his joy-filled laughter. And life pops up in all kinds of species and all kinds of places. But it isn't enough. God has something else in mind. A deeper, more fulfilling relationship that can't be found in anything else he's made. His love wants to be shared. He wants to create something that can return his vivacious joy. He wants to feel and commune with someone that's free of all the instincts and laws of everything else in creation. So God kneels down into the musty soil of planet Earth and begins to gather up dirt and clumps. Tears of joy and love roll from his eyes softens the dirt, giving him a workable substance to bring into form a wonder unseen in the cosmos until then. Hands, feet, a head to carry the mind, a heart to inhabit the chest, legs, fingers, eyebrows, and organs. God makes human. Next, so he can guarantee that the image of this new creature, creature will reflect his own, he does something exceptional. He leans over and kneels beside the form, laying out his legs and knees on ours, his chest against our chest, his arms stretched across our arms until his face is pressed up against ours. Then, out of his abundant longing, he takes a deep breath and he breathes out his life force. 
our lungs expand and we take the first breath. Out of complete darkness, we awaken as a cosmic infant, not yet knowing even how to open our eyes. So slowly we draw up the muscles above our eyebrows, prying open our eyelids. And in this sacred moment, the first impression of what life in this world will be like, the very first thing we see is not soil, not vast emptiness, not even a garden. It's the face of God, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, chest to chest. What author Strong Coleman is getting at in that beautiful piece is that in the Genesis account, humanity does not wake up wondering what to do, where we are and how to make sense of the world. We wake up in direct contact with our maker in his presence. We were created to be in relationship with God. But even more than that, to have God's spirit, his life force within us. Again, Strawn says it this way, we're welcomed not only into proximity with God, but into the closest form of contact, sharing life forces together. His breath, his spirit filling us. This is how it's meant to be. But if we're honest, so much of we, what we experience day to day doesn't feel like that. And even if you observe just our city and the culture that we live in, there's a reality that secularism and the evil forces behind that want to drive God's spirit out of us. You know, this year there was this incredible move of God at Asbury College in Wilmington, Kentucky. And there was an article that came out in the New York Times where people were discussing and in one editorial, someone says, you know what? We don't need a revival of religion like that. We need a revival of the enlightenment. In other words, what's happening, that kind of religious revival that's happening with these college kids at Asbury College is actually not good. It's not helpful. The secular view of reality is like, no, we need to get back to the enlightenment. We need to get back to scientific, rational thinking, not whatever kind of emotional thing is happening with these college kids. You know, Pastor John Tyson appropriately calls what's happening in our culture a reverse exorcism. Secularism is trying to drive out God out of the culture. Secularism wants to disciple us and shape us into its view of reality, which is totally void of the presence of God. Now, you may experience in our city, friends, neighbors, and culture getting behind the justice that we're excited about. But as we even link arms with neighbors and friends, you'll notice, and I've noticed, that they want to do acts of justice with us, perhaps around foster care or refugee care, but they would prefer that I leave Jesus out of it. There's a tremendous pressure I think we all feel in our city. The motto has often been, Live and let live as long as you don't bring God into the conversation. There's pressure all around us for this extreme privatization of faith, this radical individualism. You can believe what you want, but just don't bring that faith into the public square. Do you feel this tension? 
On one hand, we're people of the presence. We're created to live closely with God, breathing his life in us. And on the other hand, we live in a secular city, in a secular environment that's literally trying to drive God out of us. So, is there anything today, please dear Lord, that could help us from the book of Exodus? And I actually think there is. The story we're gonna get in today is absolutely surprising, at times comical. It would be even more funny if it weren't so convicting and true, and I can't wait to get into it with you. This summer, we're in a series on the book of Exodus. And I don't know about you, but I have absolutely loved what I'm learning and what God is doing in me as we've had different voices each week walking us through the book. I think for me, if I was to summarize what I'm internalizing and learning about the book of Exodus, it would be this. The book of Exodus is about Jesus and the book of Exodus is about me and it's about you. So here's a little summary if you are new and you're like, I don't even know, is that the Prince of Egypt story? Yes, it is. Let me just summarize, get you up to speed really, really quickly. Um, here it is. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. God rescues them. He brings them to Mount Sinai out in the wilderness to worship. It's interesting. Remember that. The reason God gave that he was delivering his people was to bring them out to worship. So he brings them to this mountain. He makes a covenant with them. It's like a marriage between them. It's actually a fulfillment of the covenant already that's been made to God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now to this entire ethnic people, Israel. God wants to bless them. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his representatives. In the, the words of a college friend of mine, Dr. Carmen Imes, she says, God's people are to bear his name. Israel hears this opportunity, this covenant, and, and responds to God's invitation by saying, yes. Look back at Exodus 24 if you want. It's this beautiful moment where God says, here's what this means to be my people. Do you wanna do this? And they say, sign us up. We want it. So God begins, begins to give them the terms of this covenant, this 10 commandments. And then we get closer to our moment today. Moses and his apprentice Joshua are now gonna go back up the hill to meet with God, leaving Aaron, Moses' brother, who you heard last week is gonna lead the Levites, high priest. He leaves Aaron in charge. They go up on the mountain 40 days. And what is Yahweh and Moses talking about for 40 days up on the mountain? Basically, summary statement is, God is giving Moses instructions about how to construct this tabernacle, which is gonna be the hot spot of God's presence because God is absolutely committed to living among his people. It's crazy, not only does he wanna be their God and they be his representatives, he says even more than that, as you've seen my presence on the top of the mountain and all the glory and the thunder and the cloud and all this stuff that Moses goes up to and comes back down, and God says, I am so committed to being with you. I want my very presence to come down off the mountain and to be right among you in this temple, this tabernacle, the hot spot of God's glory. God's intention has always been to be with his people. Just like that beautiful poetic description of Genesis chapter one, God wants 
to be with us, just like in Eden. So that's what this is all about. So um, Moses is up on top of the mountain. He's getting these instructions. Israel's waiting at the bottom of the mountain, and that's where our story picks up. But before we get there, one point on literary context. Just as important as the narrative elements like plot, character, setting, time, we also need to pay attention to the literary structures in the scriptures. There's incredible intention and beauty and design in how the scriptures were put together and given to us. There's an art to biblical narrative. And it's important to pay attention to all these details. So I just want to put up on the screen this image of kind of our narrative and where it sits. You have many, many chapters on the instructions for the tabernacle. And when you see instructions for tabernacle, just summary statement there is God's presence with his people. So all these instructions on how God's presence is gonna be with his people. Then in the middle, you have our narratives today around the golden calf. And then after the golden calf narrative is another set of these instructions about how God is gonna be with his people. So here's the question. If there's intention, and design behind that literary structure, what is the meaning? In other words, why does that narrative break apart these two sections of instructions for building the tabernacle? Why not just put those all at the front or all at the back? Why is that right in the middle? Hold that thought. So today in our uh, narrative, there's these three movements, three scenes, if you will. Covenant broken, intercession, and then presence restored. So here we go. Scene one. Are you guys ready? Good. Scene one. Moses up on the mountain. He's in the cloud with God's glory. Pause for a second. Remember what that is. Moses is in heaven. He's in the heavens. He's in this crazy overlap of our reality, time, space, physical reality, what we experience as humans, he, Moses, as a human, on top of a mountain, but the top of that mountain, heaven has come down. That's where Moses is when he's up on the mountain. So Moses is up there, the people are waiting down below, and something goes desperately wrong. While Moses is up there getting blueprints to build this tabernacle, Israel's tired of waiting. They ask Aaron, their leader, to make them an idol. They're like, listen, we need something to worship. We don't know when you're coming back down. Aaron, give us something. Here it is, Exodus 32. By the way, keep your finger in Exodus 32. We're gonna be looking at this uh, narrative, kind of referencing back and forth. Verse four, then they, Israel said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So they're looking at this golden calf and they're saying, where's your God? Here's your God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. Wait, what? They build this golden calf. Aaron, who's supposed to be the high priest, the one that's left in charge, supposed to represent Yahweh while Moses is up with God on the top of the mountain, says, hey, you know what? It's not a bad calf. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship the calf and we're gonna call it a festival to Yahweh. It seems like Aaron is trying to perhaps salvage what has gone desperately wrong, but it's a case of way too little and way too late. They've already violated the first two commandments. They've made an idol and they've worshiped another God. And things only get worse. 
The next day, they wake up, they eat, they drink, and then the text says they got up to indulge in revelry. Now, that's not a normal word we use. Here's the bottom line. It was full-on sexual sin. They eat, they drink, and it's some kind of full-on debauchery, which was exactly how the nations worshipped their gods. So there is a major problem with Israel and their covenant with God. No sooner is it sealed, the ink's dried, or should I say the dust is settled, and Israel breaks the covenant in a major way. Yahweh delivered Israel from Egypt, brought her into the wilderness to this mountain to marry her. But now, like a bride on her honeymoon, she's sleeping with another guy. And if you think that metaphor is too harsh, that's actually not my metaphor. That's straight out of the prophets reflecting back on this moment. Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah the prophet says, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. I mean, the sting of this, there's a lot that stings here, but part of it is the timing. I mean, the honeymoon illustration is spot on. They've just made this covenant. They say, we will be fully devoted to you. You are our God. And moments later, they've committed spiritual adultery and they're running after another. Listen, in the biblical narrative, second only to Adam and Eve in the garden, has there been such a breach of trust so far. Something is definitely wrong. Israel's showing that she can't keep up her end of the covenant. Even with God on the mountain, the, remember, the glory is visible. There's a cloud up there that they can see. And even with that, they can't hold on. They can't remain faithful. But as I've sat with this text and I've let it get into me, I feel like there's a little bit of this that I can relate with. I mean, let's be honest. It's hard to wait at the bottom of the mountain. I can certainly see that in myself. I can feel like Israel waiting at the bottom of the mountain, feeling like God has forgotten me. So let me just ask you this morning, what are you currently waiting on God for? Where are you waiting for God to show up, to answer, to speak to you? I mean, I've especially found resonance as I think about some of my unanswered prayer. There are things I've been asking God to do, good things, godly things, things I've been hoping for and at times maybe thought I was seeing happen. And then in the end so far, nothing. And I don't know about you, but when I sometimes focus on my unanswered prayers, I can feel alone and I can grow disillusioned. I can grow tired of waiting. I can feel like Israel, waiting for God who feels far off in heaven, up on a mountain in a cloud. And to be honest, sometimes in that waiting and in that disillusionment, I grow tempted. You know, sometimes we want something tangible to soothe the pain of waiting and the pain of silence. Interesting that in their waiting, they turn to this idol, but they turn specifically to food, to overdrinking, and to sexual sin. 
And I don't know about you, but those seem to be primary temptations of our cultural moment and of our city. You know, I don't know about you guys, but last night, for a moment, I forgot about the naked bike ride. But somehow it always finds me. This has happened to Jenny and I multiple times. Last night we came out of dinner. I remember somebody, a friend of mine sent me a text like, hey, you're an elder in the church. Are you getting ready for this? Ha, ha, ha. And it said the world naked bike ride. This thing used to be Portland naked bike ride. Now it's the world's, which is a horrible thing to export. But I, I got it. I'm proud of so many things that come out of our city, but not that. I came out of dinner last night and we're walking to our car, probably 10 p.m. and Jenny and I, and I heard some music and I, it was like coming from the street by our car and I thought it was another car and I was like, that actually sounds so cool. What is that, you know? And as I got closer, I was like, oh God, no. There they come. And I'm like ducking into the car, you know? It's the second time that's happened. For those of you who just moved to Portland, first of all, I wanna say, I'm sorry. Second of all, I wanna say we need you. You're like missionaries here, we really need you. And in case you think if it's a total free-for-all with the naked bike ride, the mayor actually gets involved and says, no, you have to wear helmets. So it's not, <laughs> it's not a complete, there's some rules in this city, not many. But there are a few. So that's the naked bike ride, it's perfect. That's exactly what Israel was like at the bottom of the mountain, totally unhinged. Which leads us to scene two, intercession. So the narrative focus shifts now from at the bottom of the mountain where there's mayhem up to the top of the mountain where Moses and Yahweh are talking. Now remember, Yahweh can see what's happening at the bottom of the mountain, but Moses can't. So, verse seven and eight, the Lord God said to Moses, go down because your people, don't you love that? This is God talking to Moses. It's just like parenting. He's like, your kids, you know, it's not my son, your son. So he says, go down because your people, whom you, Moses, brought up out of Egypt. It's like disassociation. He's like, I need some distance from these guys. They've become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. And they themselves have cast an idol in the shape of a calf. How insulting is that to God? They're like, this is your God. He's like, what? It's not even good. And they've bowed down to sacrifice to it. So this is interesting. Yahweh made this covenant with Israel and now he wants nothing to do with them. Does this mean the covenant's broken? Is God done with them? Well, look what happens next. Verse nine. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. That's an idiom meaning they're proud and they don't easily bend to another's will. He says, now leave them alone. This is God talking. Now leave them alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation, Moses. Yahweh invites Moses into his emotions to process it together like friends. Now, I don't know about you, but this is bending my paradigm of what God is like on a few levels. Yahweh is burning in anger and he wants to process it with Moses. That is a remarkable relationship. God says he's done with them. He says, I'll start over with you, Moses. I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses pushes back on God and argues with him. 
intercedes on behalf of Israel so that they will not be destroyed. He gives three reasons. One, it's an appeal to sunk cost. You just save them. Think of all you invested in them. You can't just destroy them. Two, an appeal to reputation. What would the Egyptians say? What are the neighbors going to think? And then three, Moses reminds Yahweh of Yahweh's covenant promise. He says, God, you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would bless these people, that they would be your representative. You made an oath. You promised God. Moses boldly steps in as a mediator, as a priest between God and man. And Moses goes even further than just appealing to God. He actually offers his own life as atonement for Israel. He says, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out. Take my life. Moses would intercede even to the point of offering his own life on behalf of Israel. I love scholar Michael Morales. His comments on this are are beautiful. He says, as Israel's mediator, Moses gave himself to a life of intercessory prayer, using his unique status before God to strive with him for Israel's sake, claiming his promises on behalf of God's people, an often thankless rabble. I like that. Perhaps the main lesson derived from Moses interceding with God is that by doing so, he enabled Israel to maintain its relationship with God. More pointedly, apart from Moses' prayers, Israel surely would have been destroyed and never enter the land of Canaan. This is true intercessory prayer, to lay one's life and self on the altar on behalf of others and a heavenward pleading that rises up to God as sweet incense. So Moses intercedes. And then what happens next is so surprising. Verse 14 says, then the Lord relented. You know that word relented is the same word in Hebrew as repented. Try that on for your theology. Then God repented. He did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, obviously, God's not repenting from sin. God is changing his mind based on his conversation with his friend. He changed his mind in the direction of his action. Moses stands his ground, reminds Yahweh of who he really is, stands in the gap between Israel and God, willing to lay down his own life asking for mercy, and he gets it. Now, let me ask you something. Do you talk to God like that? Respectfully, do you go toe-to-toe in conversation with God? Asking for him to do what you know is in line with his character? Because I don't. This creates a whole new paradigm for me. I would love to have more of this boldness and the tenacity that Moses has. And I've sat with this and I think about, so why don't I? A lot of it has to come for me from apathy. The question I've been sitting with is, do I care enough for others to intercede like this? You know, Moses spends time with God face to face. And I think God's heart is being implanted into Moses' chest. He's starting to feel what God feels, and this is a prime example of it. So my prayer 
this week has been coming into this moment with you guys today. God, help me to care about people like you do. Help me to intercede. Help me to care like Moses did. You know, we mentioned earlier the daily prayer rhythm and one thing that has been helping my heart is as a staff in our office, 1 p.m. on office days, we stop, we get together and we pray for the lost in accordance with the daily prayer rhythm. And just to be really frank, that is the most consistently I've prayed for the lost in my entire life. Three or four minutes and the good peer pressure of my team sending a Slack message, hey, meet in the courtyard, we're gonna pray, has helped and has shaped my heart. And I still have a long way to go. And how humble is Moses that he's given the opportunity to be the head of a whole new nation, a do-over plan, and Moses is gonna be at the top. It's like, scratch the Israelites, we're gonna have the Moses lights. And he says, no. He says, no. I care about these ones, Lord. Save them. So then Moses and Joshua go down to see for themselves. Remember, they've only heard about how bad it is. Joshua's been off on the side, Moses with God. He grabs Joshua and he's like, my young apprentice, come with me. I'm gonna show you something. They're coming down the mountain. And as they come down, there's actually a lot of humor here. Joshua, the young leader, is like, hey, Moses, I think I hear the sound of war. And Moses is like, that's not war. That's the sounds of Coachella. And they get down there and it's like, that's not a battle, that's the battle of the DJs. Like it is the Portland naked bike ride happening at the bottom of the mountain. So Moses now gets to see what God saw. Before he just heard about it, now he gets to see it. He's gonna see what God saw and he's gonna feel what Yahweh felt. And now Moses is angry. And his anger is burning and it's actually a righteous godly response. So Moses comes down, he breaks the covenant, breaks the um, tablets, throws them on the ground, symbolizing that the covenant is broken. He takes the golden calf, he grinds it into dust, and he makes the people drink it. Then he turns to Aaron, shadowing God turning to Adam and Eve in the garden, and says, what has happened? And look at Aaron's response. Hey, don't be angry with me, Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. Blame shift. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And this fellow, you know, Moses, we don't know how long he's gonna be gone. Um, So I said to them, you know, hey, whoever's got any gold jewelry, just take it off. I throw it into the fire and poof, out comes this calf. I don't know, Moses, it's crazy. I don't know what happened, man. Listen, this would be comical and funny if it weren't so familiar. It's Adam blaming Eve. It's humans everywhere when we blame others and don't take responsibility. Moses asks the people now to make a decision. Comes down the mountain, they're clearly caught in the middle of it. And he says, right now you can make a choice. And what's crazy about this, oh, here's what he says. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, hey, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then the rest perished. Now, this is an incredibly bleak moment. This is a moment that takes a lot of time to unpack and understand. But let me just say this. This is also a moment of mercy. Israel, caught in the middle of absolute covenant violation, the most heinous sin besides Adam and Eve and the garden. And what God gives them is a choice. 
caught right in the middle and he says, now you get to choose. What do you want? That, my friends, is called mercy. There's judgment for those who don't want it, who want to continue in rebellion, and there's mercy for those who repent and come back to God. And all the Levites said, we want that. Right in the midst of this rebellion, Yahweh is offering mercy. It's beautiful. And friends, let me just remind you today, God's mercy is always extended to you. That's part of the point that we're getting at is that this is the worst moment in Israel's history and right in the middle of it. Is there judgment? Yes, but there's mercy and grace if you want it. And I think that's a word for some of you today. Do you want it? Which leads us to scene three, presence restored. You guys okay? Kind of heavy. You're like, it was funny for a minute, but then it just hurts a lot. Okay, stick in there. So we end with Moses in conversation with God again. But this time he's asking not only to forgive the people, but now he wants them to go a step further, to dwell among them. Moses contends with God again, but this time he's saying, God, I know what has happened is horrible, but do not leave us. We need your presence with us. Here's what Moses says. If your presence did not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us from the people and all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Listen, Moses has tasted of God's presence on the mountain and now he's wrestling with God. He's saying, I cannot go on I cannot leave this place. I cannot leave these people unless your presence goes with me. And what's amazing is Moses' young understudy, Joshua, also understands this. There's a little throwaway line in Exodus 33, 11, where it says this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. That's a whole sermon there. Then Moses would return to the camp. So God would speak with Moses face to face. It's a metaphor. And then Moses would go back down to the camp, but then look at this last little line. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Think about that for a second. Moses went into the glory, but then had to go back out and face the people. And Joshua wisely was like, hey Moses, you go deal with those guys. I'm just gonna hang out with God. This is amazing. Joshua, Moses, get the value of God's presence above all else. But we have to ask, When you say God's presence, what do you actually mean? What did Moses encounter up on the mountain that made his face glow? And we have a few different data points in scripture to try and understand this. But don't forget, when Moses was up on the mountains, he was in the heavens, a space where heaven and earth overlapped. And I think what Moses saw is the same thing that Jacob saw coming up and down the ladder. And it's later what Ezekiel will see in his visions and Isaiah in his. It's what the disciples saw when Jesus was transfigured on another mountain before them. It's what John saw in his radical visions of the revelation on the Isle of Patmos. They saw a glimpse of God in his radiant glory. They saw what David wrote about, the cry of his heart, David said, one thing I long from the Lord, and this only do I seek, 
that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to see him in his temple. My friends, there is a greater reality than what we see in the natural, visible world. The Western scientific rational worldview wants you and I to believe that we can only believe in what we see. But the worldview of Jesus and the scriptures says that there's an invisible world all around us that is just as real, actually more real than what we see. Do you remember Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6? Elisha, a prophet of God, he's got his, his understudy with him, and they're surrounded by the enemy. They see the enemy all around them. And Elisha, his servant's like, oh, this is it, we're done. And Elisha says, Lord, I pray that you would open his eyes that he could actually see reality. And in that moment, his servant's eyes are open, and he sees that beyond the enemy that surrounded them, is a greater number and it's the Lord's army surrounding them. My friends, this is what we need to see. We need our eyes opened to what is really real. Everything in this city is against that. Secularism is against that. It wants to suck out the presence of God, the reality of God in our lives. And as I've sat with this more and more, I've become convinced that the worldview of scripture, what I read in scripture is actually more real than what I see. We've been given the scriptures and it is reality. That's why when we read the Revelation scenes, Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter seven, Jesus on the throne, it's this paradigm that we're to live by. There is a reality in heaven right now that the lamb that was slain is alive and on the throne. And what's really real is the elders and the creatures nonstop crying out, holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The lamb that was slain, that purchased men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the elders and the creatures fall down and say amen over and over and over. And they've got all these weird, crazy eyes and they keep seeing with all those eyes new aspects of God's glory. And night and day and night and day, they worship Jesus on the throne. And that, my friends, is the center of reality. It's the center of of gravity for us. This is what the saints and the mystics have known over the years, that when we behold God in our minds, in prayer and in worship and in the scriptures, we see and can encounter his glory. We become aware of the glory of the eternal one, that at the center of the universe is this compassionate person and it's Jesus. And when we turn down all the other noise around us and seek his face, and that's why holiness is important. Holiness is simply about God wanting to be with us. And he's like, move these things out of the way so I can be with you. And when we do, we encounter the most beautiful, captivating person, the lamb that was slain. 
the one that is truly holy. And this, my friends, is what we were made for. To be caught up in this kind of wonder. And I wonder today, do you desire that? Have you tasted this? And would you like more? There's absolutely nothing on earth. Listen, food and drink and sex are just merely a taste of the banquet that's to come. Those are pointers. Those are not the real thing. Idolatry makes those the thing. Those are not the thing. Those point to the thing. Now, before we wrap up, I know what you're asking. What about the literary structure? Let's put that slide back up again. <laughs> I appreciate you asking that. <clears throat> what about the literary structure? Why is this story of great failure and great mercy wedged between the instructions for the tabernacle? So many chapters given to building the tabernacle, preparation for God's presence. The story right in the middle. Listen, this structure emphasizes God's abundant mercy and grace. On both sides, of this heinous violation of covenant, the spiritual adultery, on both sides is God's commitment to his presence being with his people. Do you understand that? Literally, this is put there to show you that no matter what you've done, your most embarrassing, most shameful, most heinous sin against the creator of the universe, you are surrounded by his desire to be with you. You're, just, you're surrounded by his mercy. If he showed that kind of mercy to Israel, he will show that mercy to you. His commitment to be with you and to live in you overshadows anything you can do. And all of this ultimately points to Jesus. Listen, there's three movements again. Covenant broken, we, like Israel, have committed spiritual adultery. But Jesus was the perfect Israelite. He went into the wilderness, he was tempted, he was tested, and he passed in absolute faithfulness and he offers his faithfulness to you. Intercession made. Jesus is our perfect intercessor. Moses interceded once, Jesus continually intercedes for me and for you. And three, presence restored. God's presence is truly among us, even in us. God has filled the temple and his temple is you. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? God has breathed his life force, his presence. What was in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is now in you. I just, the mercy that God would want to live in me. You know, I used to think and I used to say that God can't dwell with sinful man because he's too holy, but I don't believe that anymore. It's actually not true. God dwells in you. He wants you to be his temple. We no longer need temples and tabernacles because you are the place where God dwells. And listen, 
If like Moses or David or Joshua, there's stirring desire in you to be in God's presence, let me tell you something. His desire to be with you is far greater. So will you open up your heart today? I don't know your story. I don't know the pain that you felt. I don't know the unanswered prayers you're sitting in, but I think the invitation today is simple. Would you open up your heart again? As we pray here, would you simply pray again? The scripture says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you again today open up your heart, open up yourself to God's presence and love to others?